Thank you all very much and thank you for the invitation and thank you for being yourselves and thank you for being part of the Dharma and it touches my heart to be here with you. Um, so my, I'm British, uh, my meeting with the Dharma itself started from uh, the kindness of the British government that sent me to India in 1976 to be a, a, a lecturer in uh, biochemistry. I have a scientific background uh, in Indian universities in Varanasi. Uh, but of course, Varanasi. <laughs> India, the holy city of India, and that's where I met the Dharma. Uh, and um, so I came back to uh, uh, England and then I moved to Israel in 1980. Uh, because of a, a, an alternative community that I helped to found in uh, Galilee, which I still live there till today. Um, and I've been practicing since that time. And in 1990-something, I started to teach in... 95, 96, started to teach in Israel and also uh, initiated uh, the Dharma community, the Israel Insight Society. And the Israel Insight Society is an unbelievable, beautiful organization in a difficult country. Um, and I, I really wanted to, want to tell you, uh, because you know, we read about Israel and so on, and, and it's true, <laughs> it's a hard country, but the Dharma community is amazing. We have uh, Israel Insight Society that I helped to found, and I'm a senior teacher there, it has 45 retreats in the year uh, with thousands of people joining retreats, all on dana basis. We don't charge a penny. The whole thing, nearly all of it is run by volunteers. We have classes all through the country. There are thousands of people involved in the Dharma in Israel, even though the population is minimal and much less than New York. Um, And um, um, we have programs uh, in half the prisons in the country, in half the schools in the country, mindfulness and meditation. Uh, we have programs on wise aging for elderly. Uh, we have... Uh, um, it keeps falling off. Uh, sh should, should we move to that? Because it, it keeps... How's the sound now? Sounds all right? Okay, great. Um, we have a program of uh, home visits to cancer patients, all done by volunteers, and we have peace work with Israelis and Palestinians inside the Dharma community, people going off all the time to the Palestinian areas, uh, bringing Israelis and Palestinians together. And all of that in a Dharma community uh, which is so alive and uh, so I just wanted to kind of pass that to you and a couple of small stories firstly two years ago I wrote a book uh, and in Hebrew it's called um, the translation from the Hebrew is called uh, waking up or awakening in daily life and this book uh, is not a beginner's book uh, how to do mindfulness ABC it goes much deeper than that it's about if we have an awakened view of reality, as the Buddha described, and if we really have an awakened view of our life, how does it change our daily life? From sickness to aging to daily life uh, challenges to peace and conflict, to, and then it goes all the way into uh, deep practice and into awakening uh, itself. 
So I thought, well, a book like that, uh, not that many people are going to read it. Inside the Dharma community, they will certainly read it. It was 18 weeks, the number one uh, bestseller in the list of non-fiction books in Israel. Which, uh, not, that doesn't, it's not the ego that was happy about that. It's the understanding that people are hungry for another message. For another, people need meaning. People need another alternative view of reality. When people came to me and said, if I practice mindfulness, will everything be okay and I'll be happy? <laughs> no. <laughs> mindfulness is a great beginning, but we're talking about a view of reality, which is a Dharma view, which changes everything. So, um, uh, and, and the, another small story, and the, the book that is now published in, in English, that's the same book. Uh, and that's the reason that really I'm in the States uh, going around all the Dharma communities and, and giving talks and, and being here is because of the new book, which is the translation of that book. Uh, but what happened is some students uh, asked me to come into a pub in the north of Israel where they all go and gather to give a talk to young people. Well, there was like 200 people in the pub. So I gave a talk. And people were really excited. And again, young people, hungry for another view, hungry for a bit of hope, hungry for uh, or really needing a, a, an alternative view of reality rather than the usual you know, reality of anxiety, conflict, meaninglessness, money, shopping, screens. You know, what else? So, uh, and since that time, that was two years ago, I've been to 30 pubs and bars all through, <laughs> all through Israel under the, under the title Buddha at the Bar. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I'm just, it's, it's all of that is just to show you something alive, the aliveness of, uh, of what's, been, what's happening there. Uh, I think it will go down well in New York. But I have videos of that, like 100 people in the bar with their beers on the table all going into deep meditation for 15-20 minutes. Um, the whole bar sort of quiet, people with their eyes closed sitting there. It's amazing. <laughs> anyway, um, so about tonight, uh, I, um, I have been doing a lot of sessions in uh, America. And people are very keen to um, get a, another view of conflict. And I've been I was in uh, Spirit Rock a few days ago and I gave two sessions there, a one-day event and an evening event on the issue of conflict, on activism, on how Dharma works to go out into the community and make a difference. And my intuition was uh, New York Insight, I felt there'd be quite a few maybe long-term practitioners. I really felt like going into something deep, pure Dharma and not into the... So if you were expecting, coming from Israel, I talk about how Dharma can deal with conflict, um, maybe, you, you know, we can talk about it privately, but tonight I really wanted to go into something deeper, and I, I don't know why, it's just intuition. And the deepest place that maybe would fit uh, to, to, tonight uh, is the, the self and no self. Tomorrow is a one-day teaching, and tomorrow... Uh, it, the subject is equanimity, which is also quite deep, but in that day we will talk a little bit about how to go out in the world with equanimity and make change. So tomorrow I will address it a little bit more, but tonight, just to give you a sort of a direction, um, I'm going to talk about and work with you on issues of self and no self, because it's such a key issue inside uh, Buddha Dharma. So what we'll do is uh, we'll start with a meditation and then uh, I'll give a talk and then we'll have some questions. So uh, with your permission I'd quite like to go straight into the talk and have a break after the talk if that's alright. Um, rather than having a break now and then so I, I just want to say that every time I go to England, 
Uh, I go to the Globe Theatre to see Shakespeare uh, in London. And the last time I went there, uh, there was uh, King Lear. And King Lear uh, is dramatic. How's it connected to self and no self? King Lear, like the mythological image of the king, is the archetype of me. And if you know the story, the king grew demanding like a big narcissistic child, and we, and we know that one. <laughs> a few politicians in this world are like that. Um, and he said, you know, do you love me, you don't love me. He tested his daughters, he wanted more love, he wanted more acknowledgement, he was, he was pushing for... And uh, slowly he went mad. He went crazy through his need for acknowledgement, for being a king, for more. And life didn't do it. Life didn't provide him what he needed, so he went crazy. And uh, in the, there was a storm, which you could call the storm of life. And uh, he was going, uh, he, he just went mad uh, through so much selfing. However, there was one little voice. That's the fool in the court of the king. And there's always a fool in the court of the king. The fool is the voice in the mind that actually says, wait a minute, you don't need to go there. You're destroying yourself. A fool is the voice of, or like the sensible voice that says, don't, don't be so puffed up. And it's such a beautiful, to me, it's such a beautiful uh, image of the self. And uh, so in the Buddha Dharma, the issue of self is huge. Basically, the Buddha said, there is no enlightenment or awakening uh, if you are full of self. If you are attached and believe in the self-story, it's impossible. It is an essential component of awakening, is to meet the self and to dissolve the self. And the reason is, you, it, it's, a, it's spiritual. And I think not only in, doesn't matter, we're talking about Kabbalah, which I've also studied a bit. It's the same. If you are like that, and that's the way you see the world, me and what I need and what I have to happen and what, what I believe in and what my views are and what I want and what's right and what's wrong and so on and so on. You're like this. The spiritual world cannot be there. The spiritual world has to be when this filter of me, me, me is opened and dissolved. So the Buddha Dharma is absolutely clear. We have to confront the issue of self and selfing. Uh, Krishnamurti said a beautiful thing one time. He's, he's very wise. Um, he said, the whole tragedy of human existence lies between the subject and the object. It's so profound <laughs> and beautiful. Um, so all genuine spiritual practice goes there. Buddha Dharma especially, but also others. And uh, awakening is not awakening of, a, of me. It's not a, there's no awakened me. Awakening or enlightenment isn't owned by anybody. However, that creates a lot of confusion and I understand the confusion and a lot of questions and a lot of um, misunderstandings and I hope a little bit to clear some of them tonight. Um, and, and the confusions are <laughs> very obvious. Uh, is there or is there not a self? <laughs> Basically. And whenever the Buddha was asked that, he stayed silent because it's the wrong question. 
that's not a question, it's not a legitimate question, because in either case, you've got the wrong answer. If you say there is a self, you've got the wrong answer. If you say there's no self, you've got the wrong answer. And so the Buddha was always silent when asked that question, because that's not the question. And if, if you go into a place of belief in no self, which is a lot of Buddhist, shall we say, belief systems are around it. I mean, I've got a book at home, which I can't read. It's like, it's, it's this thick. <laughs> a, a Mahayana Tibetan uh, uh, commentary on um, emptiness. It's this thick, I can't read it. It's like so convoluted. It's all about emptiness, how it exists, it, you know. Um, and there's some basic questions. If there is, if emptiness exists, if there is no self, then whose back hurts when I'm sitting here? Then who makes choices? Then how do I act in the world? And so these kind of questions are very legitimate, um, but they're often based on a wrong assumption, a wrong understanding of the Buddhist teaching on self and no self. And, it, you know, I bet if I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but one fundamental question that everybody asks is if there's no self, who is it that can intend to be no self? <laughs> who is it that intends to practice no self? <laughs> um, so it's important to understand that we have to get out of belief systems. Because the Buddha said, a self is an attachment, and the attachment is belief in a self. It's about belief. It's about an assumption. And I want to explain that. We have to understand something about the self. The self is like the operating system in a computer. It's like Windows. We need an operating system. I, we can't cross this road out here. Uh, what is it, West 27th Street? Yeah. We, we can't cross that road if, we're not, if we don't have an operating system that tells us how not to get knocked over by a car. If every arm and every cell and every thought is doing independent things, Who's running the show? Who, how can we cross the road? So the self is a deeply functional um, organizing system that we all need. And we need to grow up as a healthy self. A kid that's grown up with uh, maybe super Buddhist parents that say, don't be a self, don't be a self, don't grow up as a self, don't go, will be pretty screwed up. <laughs> and I know a few. <laughs> we need a healthy self because we need, like, we need healthy hands. We need a healthy body. So we need a, a functional, healthy self. The operating system has to work. However, the problem is that it becomes transparent. We don't know that the self is running the show because we don't see it. We just see through it. So we act. I am doing this, I am doing that, this is me. We, we act on automatic. So we're running on automatic, the self is running the show, and we don't see the self at all. We just do our life. So we do the self. For example, someone argues with us, and we get defensive, we're in conflict. We just say, shout back, you know, someone says, you're an idiot, we just shout back. How can you say that? How do you, why you don't listen to me? You can't say that. We don't notice that it's the self that is defending itself. The self is an agency for defending. It's meant to defend the body, but actually in the end it ends up defending itself most of, the most of the time. If you think of most of our life, we are super busy coping, managing, running the show, getting money, being safe, being healthy, being respected, being loved, being appreciated, uh, being somebody and not and, and we don't even notice it. 
So all of that is the self kind of being busy looking after itself. When it's supposed to be looking after the body, it ends up looking after itself. I don't, think, I don't know if you can see that, but that's what happens. I mean, i just give you one example, which I don't, it touches me deeply. The First World War was one of the most kind of horrible wars that you can imagine, with millions of people dying horrible deaths in, in, in trenches in Europe. Millions. And the whole thing was fought because of concepts of honour. Nobody was really uh, uh, invading anybody. It was fought because of you know concepts of honour and uh, 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 empire and manoeuvring between power centres in Europe, and basically basically fought because of honour. So honour is the self, and millions of people died because of selfing. You know, just an example, and you can think of a few more. So um, the self is, is, is quite a, it's meant to protect us, but it actually can often do the, exactly the opposite. So, what, how to practice, how to uh, work with the, all of this. The first thing to do is to see the self in operation. That means to make the self less transparent, not just living it and doing it automatically, but actually seeing this self in operation. And um, <laughs> reminds me of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> one, one day, um, Pooh arrived and Piglet was... Uh, digging in the garden and uh, Piglet turned to Pooh and said um, I knew it was you and Pooh said uh, so did I <laughs> and if we can actually see ourselves like that yeah I know it's me here I am um, I have to tell you a personal story that really my Dharma journey started when I was about six years old in London when I was reading Rudyard Kipling and the Jungle Book and I read it about five times it was so amazing I had an old edition sort of almost you know hundred year old book and um, Mowgli uh, knew he was a wolf because he was brought up by wolves. So, he didn't think he was a human being. He knew he was a wolf because his parents were wolves. Therefore, the only, the only um, reason that I think I am Stephen is because my parents told, told me I'm Stephen. It's something I learnt from somewhere else. Therefore, there is no Stephen. It's just something we're told. And I really, kind of at the age of six or seven years old, when I, I was really, it's my first kind of Dharma insight. I'm just somebody because I'm told I'm somebody, so there's no real person there at all. It wasn't that easy. I, I kind of struggled with that and I couldn't tell anybody and I was quite a kind of withdrawn kid because of these kind of insights which I couldn't share with anybody because people you know, just didn't understand me. But um, one way that we can see the self that's quite easy is um, this, like the story of uh, King Lear but also the story, our stories of control. When we feel the pressure to control life, to fix things, to make things happen in a certain way, we feel pressure that we ha things have to be different, things have to be like this, we need to fix that, we need to sort that, we need to change that, or we need to change somebody else, or we need to change ourselves. 
control is a very good way of, of noticing the operation of selfing. So just bear that in mind. There's a nice story by a Russian uh, author called Kirillov about a horse. And the horse was kind of deeply stuck in the mud. And it struggled and it struggled and it got its feet out and it, you know, it struggled to get its, its hooves out of the mud and eventually it did. And it was hard to get itself out. When it was out of the mud, a fly flew up from the tail of the horse to its head and said, we did it. <laughs> That's the self. <laughs> Illusion. Control. We did it. <laughs> um, so we can actually see that it as pain, painful. We can see the pain of being busy trying to control things. It gives us stress. If we look behind stress, we will see a self that is all the time trying to, trying to, to sort things out and uh, trying to get things better. And so we see that and we can see the self operating. Ah, okay. It's, again, the me trying to kind of um, manipulate things to make things more comfortable. Ah, I'm a bit of a slave to this self. So we need to see the first thing about anatta, self and non-self, is to see the self. The anatta is not about trying to get rid of the self. Anatta is about seeing self and seeing how it changes. So um, we can also uh, um, see the self as boundary, we can see the self as um, agency or ownership. When we, you know, feel good, I bought my house. Actually, there's an unreality, there's an illusion about that. Our ownership of something is really illusory. Do we really? Can we really own? It's a thought. And we feel good, we've got a house. I mean, I'm not putting that down. It's really great to have a house. I don't want to say you've got to give your house away uh, as dana because of this talk tonight. <laughs> it, that's fine to have a house, but to know that in the end it's illusion because you have a piece of paper saying, I own this house. Can we really own it? Can we eat it? Can we hold what? It, it isn't real, but yes, we can say it's an understanding that helps me in my life feel secure. So we need, to, we need to look at these things. We can see the selfing, especially in conflict, when we're challenged, when we are, are, someone is arguing with us, when someone presses our buttons. All of those times is time to see the self arising as a response to the world. So someone says, like I said before, pushes our buttons, says something like, you're an idiot, and our defensive response is the self arising. We need to be aware, mindful, and see the way the buttons are pressed, see what happens, see how we react automatically, defensively, see the um, defensiveness, and the reactivity, and see all of that is run by a self that's trying to protect itself. That is something we can do with my, in mindfulness, awareness. And uh, it's get close to, um, to uh, uh, the self. It, it gets us to really see the, 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 the selfing as it's happening. Maybe I'll read something... Um, there's something about all of this. What I've been saying up to now is meeting the self as it is, but not trying to kind of uh, attack the self, but allowing the self to be itself, but seeing it. The Dharma doesn't try and make more conflict inside us. I have to fight myself. 
in the name of anatta, non-self or emptiness. I have to get rid of myself. Nobody says that. In the, in the real Dharma, that is not the way to do things. But the way to do things is to feel comfortable with ourselves, to be welcoming of ourselves, but to see it as it arises. Just like we're welcoming the breath and the body and the thoughts, we're not attacking. Sorry. We're not a attacking, <laughs> defending. <laughs> we're not attacking and defending. Um, we're welcoming, allowing. So I want to read a little piece from the book which actually expresses this. And it's quite a, a piece that sort of summarizes the Dharma. I live, that's me, out in Israel, in the Galilee. I live alongside lots of olive trees, which have an amazingly expressive character that clearly shows everything that has happened to them. If a branch has been cut or if the tree reaches out in a certain direction or lumps are formed on the trunk, you can see it. The shaping of the tree is its memory, its sankara, construction, a response to conditions. The tree doesn't have a problem with that. And there is no reason why we should have a problem either. We are also just shaped, constructed by life. We are given a body and it develops and changes dynamically according to conditions. And we arrive in each moment as we are. And the world arises and meets us as it is. And all we need to do is to appreciate it and let it be. Stories are just stories, narratives are just narratives, and embodiment is just embodiment. If we let go into this flow of life, we will find ourselves in the garden of the now instead of the prison of yesterdays. A difficult experience can come up, just like an unpleasant visitor arriving in our house. We can cry, and the next minute we can laugh, and then he's gone. So let's now, one, that's the first thing is to, in our practice and in our life and we need to see the self arising in response to conditions and be okay with that. That's sort of basis. Now let's go a bit more deeply. The Dharma begins to challenge the belief in self. So we respond to situations, but if we look at an experience more deeply, it doesn't really have two sides to it. That sounds mysterious, but we have a tendency to duality. So the mind, through it, the way we look at things, the way we learnt, the self, subject, object, because we arise, a self arises, it tends to make a duality, me and the world, me and an object, and it makes experiences have two sides to, to it. This and that. Experience can't have two sides. It has to be one thing. There can't be two sides to it. Uh, there and here, me and the, and the bell, me and this. There cannot be two sides in the end to experience. It has to be one. So um, the Dharma would in, begin to ask us to go deeply inside experience and really examine what experience is made of. And at that, when we do that, we begin to see that change and flow is the nature of experience. And change and flow doesn't really need a me and an object. And all our meditations will tend to tell us that. So 
Anicca anatta dukkha, the three characteristics of, is the inside of experience, is the deeper place of understanding experience. So when we practice mindfulness meditation, we are learning gradually that experience is a flow, not a duality. We get close to things. The breath, for example, we begin to realize that it's just breathing itself, that the breathing is happening. It doesn't need to be my breath or I am looking at a breath. It's just happening. And we learn that slowly and steadily. It's in, inherent in Buddha Dharma. I mean, we did it in the meditation just now. There is a hand. There is a person looking at a hand. I am looking at the hand. That's a brief, instant, um, non-examined, non, not very mindful, uh, dualistic experience. Me and a hand. Okay, It's dualistic, it's not really mindful, it's not deep, it's just instant, and it's good, I need a hand for doing things, <laughs> fine, let me do things with this hand, fine. Now go deeper, and actually we can do it ourselves, let's do it now, together, put the hands together, and close your eyes for a moment, and we'll just take a minute, and really examine what is happening between the fingers? What exactly is the experience of pressure between two fingers? Get close. Kind of high resolution. Pressure between two fingers. What's that like now? And how is it changing? How are the cells? What's the experience of the cells and the tissues? changing and changing and changing and we don't have labels for what's really happening pressure touch movement energy light electricity Okay, thank you. You can leave it now. You see how different that experience is from there's a hand, my hand. It's totally different. It's opening the box. And it's not, no longer, I'm sure we didn't really feel that the sensations of touch were my sensations of touch. They were just life. So, I want to um, talk about ways which we can accelerate or uh, increase the understanding of um, uh, dissolving the belief in, in, in self and selfing. The first thing is um, what we did now is, deep see is more deep seeing. And when we see anything deeply, it dissolves, it goes to pieces. 
When we see things deeply, they go to pieces. When we see this hand more deeply, it's no longer a hand. It's gone to pieces. We can't even describe what those feelings are between two fingers. We don't know. We don't have a language for it. It goes into pieces. And the same with everything that we look at carefully, it goes to pieces. So if we look carefully at the self, what, what is it? This, what is this thing? So we need to kind of look, keep looking deeply at the self. Even when we notice a self that's controlling, we can ask the question, Who, what is this thing that's running the show? What is the operating system? How does it feel like? What's it like? What is it? And that question is really important. And it's not the answer that's important. It's the question. I must quote Winnie the Pooh again. <laughs> Pooh, one day, I was um, looking uh, for Piglet, and he couldn't find Piglet. And his comment was, um, the more I looked, the more Piglet wasn't there. Isn't it beautiful? It's perfect dharma. The Buddha couldn't have said it better than that. <laughs> the more pool looked, the more piglet wasn't there. So we, we need to look directly at what is this self running? What is this thing that's running the show? When you, as I said before, challenged in the street by someone saying something, we feel defensive. Let me look at this self that's arising and defending itself. When I feel needy, what, let's look at this neediness of the self. So we look directly at the self. It's a way of getting closer to anatta. Atta anatta. Atta is self, anatta is non-self. And um, uh, it's crucial in Zen. Zen, Zen Buddhism very much works with questions and doubt and uncertainty. So, um, great doubt in the Zen tradition. Doubt, what is? What is this? But not only in the Zen, in, in non-dual, in Ramana Maharshi, in the non-dual teachers that you may know about, this question, what is it? Who, who am I, is crucial, is like, this is the practice, who am I? So that one way to accelerate the process of meeting the self and dissolving the self is really directly to keep asking this question and to, to see, to feel, to live it as a question. It's living the question. It's not trying to find an answer. It's living the question. This me, Stephen, what is this Stephen that's, you know, mystery? What is this thing? It's a, it's a question that we need to keep asking ourselves. A second, area, a second place where we can accelerate, if you like, the uh, meeting of self and non-self is our longing to be free of self. We do have a longing because the self, in a way, is um, pressure and defense and stress and friction between us and the world. The self, you can more or less define it in Buddhism as friction. Me and the world against each other, kind of. Control. And um, so we, there is in us actually a longing to be free, but we're afraid. We don't want to be free too quick. And indeed, by the way, um, we really have to be... And here I'm, I'm talking about people on deep retreat. Uh, things can't happen too quickly. And, I mean, I'm teaching really hundreds of thousands of people on retreat, and sometimes it happens too quickly. And people get a feeling of depersonalized, vulnerable, because it's too fast. The self, they have, go through a so real enlightenment experience and they feel no self and ah, it's really scary. So it, it needs to happen gradually and like I said, one of the places 
that we it it can be more trusting and reliable is in this, like in the story uh, in my in the quote that I just read from my book that we have a sense I am made like this the shape of me is all right I don't have a problem with the shape that God made me conditions and if we kind of rest in that place then when we think the questioning happens, we'll feel okay. A personal story many, many years ago, I was, uh, I've done a lot of deep personal retreats in all kinds of places in the world. So I was in, in India for six uh, week personal retreat in a small room in an ashram in South India on my own. And um, I was convinced Don't laugh at me. I'm going to tell you now. But I was convinced that there was a kind of abyss, a kind of chasm, a kind of emptiness. And I was dying to jump into it because I thought that is the place of ultimate emptiness. And I want to jump there. And every time I went close to that place of the abyss, I felt fear and jumped back. I couldn't, I couldn't jump in. I, didn't, I, I went there and I, I just you know, felt, oh, I can't go there. And then I, but I wanted to. So I wanted to jump into the abyss and I, I couldn't. And I went again. And there was a teacher nearby who, that was the reason I was there, was a teacher in a, another place nearby that I quite respected. And he would come and visit me every two or three days and we'd talk a bit. And I told him about this and he said, well, keep going to the edge and just rest there. And then go to the edge again and rest there. And the other thing is remember to be happy <laughs> and joyful. <laughs> and indeed, it's a good advice. So you want to know what happened. <laughs> and I'll tell you what happened. I discovered after the little while, there was no abyss. The whole thing was a construction. There was no place to jump. <laughs> it was all a kind of absurd construction of me, myself and no self and no need to jump anywhere. <laughs> um, so I spent, you know, the last two or three weeks of, uh, of that self-retreat in a hammock under the trees in India watching the birds flying by. <laughs> no abyss, no jumping. <laughs> So another place that, um, that kind of uh, an acceleration of self and no self is what I would call um, the, uh, the power to take things to pieces. So I never used to think that the aggregates were important, but the Buddha talked about the aggregates again and again and again and again, sutta after sutta. Really, it's the second talk he gave to his, uh, after his enlightenment, was all about the aggregates. And you've all maybe heard of the Heart Sutta, form and emptiness. Form is one of the aggregates. If you read the Heart Sutta, it's about the five aggregates, form, uh, perception, feeling, sankhara or memory, construction and consciousness. Five elements that make up human experience. So the aggregates are an example of the way in which when we look at experience it goes into pieces. And there are many ways in the Dharma in which we can take to pieces. It's deconstruction. It's deconstruction. So I never thought this was that important, but about 10 years ago, I began to realize how important it is to be able to take to pieces things and to see them as elements that the, everything is made of something else. Everything is constructed by pieces. And uh, the aggregates are crucially important in, uh, in um, and, and we understand that they're made, that our experience is made of bubbles. 
And the Buddha said that, used those words. Our experience is made of bubbles that come and go nothing. Feeling is made of bubbles. Like in the Heart Sutta, form is nothing other than emptiness. Emptiness is nothing other than form. Form is one of the aggregates. Feelings are nothing other than empty. Em uh, uh, empty uh, emptiness is nothing other than feelings. Uh, perceptions, sankharas, are empty. And the Buddha said again and again that these elements of experience are like bubbles in the air. And that's an, a, a very, very powerful way of undoing the self-belief. So I just want to read a small quote um, which is quite sweet. Uh, as you know, um, the Buddha was always, all through his life, was challenged by the ordinary mind. It, enlightenment wasn't the end of everything. He was still challenged after his enlightenment by the ordinary mind that turned up in his life. He called it Mara. Uh, who's heard of Mara? Okay, good. <laughs> so, Mara is the ordinary mind and all that it needed to be done is to see Mara. Because as soon as you see Mara, you say, well, I know you, thank you very much, bye-bye. That's what the Buddha did. He didn't do more than that. He didn't need to do more than that. We don't need to do more than that. Anyway, Mara came to um, a nun called uh, Sister Vajira and said, um, Sister, who created this being, this human being, you? Where is the maker? Where is the creator of this human being? Where is the origin of a living being? What's its origin? And where does it stop being a living being? And Sister Vajira said, What, Mara? Do you assume there is such a thing as a human being? <laughs> Do you take such a position? There isn't a human being. It's just a purely a pile of constructions, of fabrications. There's no living being can be pinned down. You can't pin down any living being. Just as when, with a collection of pieces, we get the word chariot, or a car, or an object. It's a collection of pieces. So when we collect these aggregates, perception, feelings, form, substance, we collect them together, there is the convention of a human being. You say, that's a human being. But it's just a convention. If we look carefully, we can't find a human being. So it's a beautiful story. <laughs> so um, I just might have to come to the end because that, the talk otherwise is getting too long. Um, so I'm coming, uh, just a couple more minutes. Um, what also helps us in all of this is living with less certainty, allowing the freshness, allowing the uncertainty, allowing the not knowing, being okay with non-knowing, being okay with questioning, and the original mind, ah, oh, ah. Oh. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's an absurd example, but someone uh, cuts you, cuts you off in the traffic. Okay, the self will go, oh, how can they do that? They cut me off. They, they, they cut. Oh, the stupid people. Oh, the drivers in New York or Tel Aviv. Or <laughs> but a. Uh, uh, a more um, free would say, oh, someone's gone like that. <laughs> What's it got to do with me? Nothing. They just went like that. Oh, that's a surprise. <laughs> uh, life is a surprise. 
Life is a surprise. And we can feel surprised and open and let things happen. We don't have to define everything. And final, I just want to finish with one uh, a final um, and I have more to say but maybe when we have questions we, it will come up. One final point. We, there are meditations and we'll do one or two before uh, t- today on um, uh, experiences of going beyond boundary. Boundarylessness. So this boundary of me a thing is um, an assumption, is something we learnt. So a meditation, for example, big mind meditation, can take us out of the boundary. And practice can take us out of uh, the, um, the, the usual boundaries. And there are, within Buddhist teaching, you know, Dzogchen, uh, for example, Lama Surya Das teaches uh, Zogchen retreats here in, in America. There's many Zogchen teachers, and Zogchen is about great perfection beyond the self, is actually directly going into places of beyond self. So the Advaita teachers go there. Um, there's an issues around Advaita and Dharma, which I can't go into now, I don't have time. Uh, you know, the Buddha. Um, but I've, I've been very engaged in, in Advaita as well in my life. And Advaita teachers will go directly straight there. So I want to finish with a small story about boundarylessness, which, um, which is kind of interesting uh, anecdote. Um, two years ago, uh, there's a bunch of researchers at University of Tel Aviv, University of Haifa, and the Weizmann Institute in in, in Israel. And they uh, asked me, we'd like to do some research in the Dharma, and they were all Dharma practitioners, all these researchers. They've all been on retreats with me and so on. So they said, we'd like to do some research uh, on the Dharma. What, What do you suggest? I said, well, look, I'm not interested in another paper on how good mindfulness is for you. I'm not, inter- I'm not interested in which parts of the brain light up when you meditate. <laughs> enough of it, there's enough of all that. But what would be really interesting is to do research on self and non-self because there's so little of that and the Western world is built on so much belief in me and mine and so on and the Dharma can come with such a beautiful teaching on the flexibility of self and the freedom that we have, to, uh, that, that freedom from selfing. And it's not yet really reached Western thinking. This is Dharma that hasn't yet come into Western thinking, uh, the flexibility. There is neuronal plasticity and so on in the Western thinking, but this sense of non-self really hasn't touched Western mind yet. So this is something I really like to... Uh, research. So they said, okay, uh, let's do it and you be the, su- you be the subject. <laughs> I said, well, all right, okay, if that's what you want. So um, they did some research on me. I was the uh, guinea pig. Uh, and uh, they were basically doing re- what's called psychoneurophenomenology, which is deep, deep questioning of the experiences. And they also put me through a number of machines, um, different kinds, testing. And they tested three states of mind. One state of mind is full boundary. That's the edge of my body. This is me and that's the end of me. And second stage of openness. The boundaries are flexible. And third stage Limit, limitless, no boundary, no self, dissolving. And those three stages were tested in machines, and and, and, and um, uh, 
It was published as two major papers on, on this experience. Uh, one was in neurology and consciousness and neurology, I don't know. And it, it, the two papers were talked about and it was published on the experience of one person, which is quite unusual in science. Anyway, just last November, I took, I took 30 people who are experienced meditators through a three-week course in experiences of no boundary. And then they were all tested as well. So to try and re repeat this with 30 people. Uh, I don't know the results. It's still in process. But I just thought it's a nice story to tell you um, on this whole issue of boundary and no boundary. Uh, you can practice actually getting beyond the boundary of a usual uh, construction of here is me, there is the world, there is my limit, there is the world, and these two sides, you can dissolve the whole thing. And um, it's just a nice little story that illustrate that. <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, we'll just take one minute of contemplation and then we'll take a break and we'll have questions afterwards. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.